Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. This episode is sponsored by Yardi, and we do thank them for that. And we also want to thank the Real Estate Forums for setting up this interview with our guest today, who is Vanessa Oliver of Regent Street Commercial Corp. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. Thank you. So we're going to jump into a couple of topics today. Vanessa is a a retail expert, and we're going to focus on the tenant and landlord side of that equation. But before we get going, Vanessa, can you jump into how you got into real estate, how you got to where you are today, and give us a bit on uh, Regent Street? Sure. It's a bit of an interesting story. I graduated university and don't think I had any idea what commercial real estate was all about. I went and spent a year in Paris doing a French Chamber of Commerce diploma. And instead of falling in love with a hot French man, I fell in love with crepes. And I decided that there was nothing quite like an authentic French creperie in Paris and wanted to come back to Toronto and start my own crepe business. It was, you know, in Paris at the time as a student, you could, for $5, you could get a delicious, fresh, healthy crepe and a Diet Coke for about five bucks. And I thought the only alternative Toronto had was street meat or a Subway sandwich. So I came back wanting to do that. And in my search for a location, I all of a sudden was exposed to commercial real estate and retail leasing and looking for a location for my own little restaurant. And after having a deal fall through, the agent that was helping me suggested that I'd be very good in that business. And why don't I come and work with him? And I could have my eye out for a perfect crepe location in Toronto, but at the same time, learn a little bit more about commercial real estate. And he would understand once I decided to go ahead and open that creperie. But here I am 17 years later, still helping a number of Canadian and Toronto restaurateurs find their restaurant locations. And I've been saving crepes for weekend family brunches with my kids and my husband. When was the last time you had a crepe? This past weekend. Saturday okay, good. morning. Okay. Jeez. I was going to be angry. I was going to be angry if you said months and months and months. No, I'm telling you, it's an every weekend thing. But I am, I'm actually quite grateful for the position I ended up in because the restaurant business is not for the faint of heart. There are far easier ways to make money, more forgiving businesses to be in for sure, as we're seeing right now. And so, yeah, I've been working in brokerage for the last 17 years. I started off with a couple of the larger brokerages, Cushman and Collier's. But was always very entrepreneurial and always had an interest in starting my own thing. And with the client base that I had grown, I felt that the kind of platform that the larger brokerages offered weren't as fundamental to my business. And I decided at uh, about 30 years old to give starting my own brokerage a shot. And that was uh, nine years ago. And that's how Regent Street came to be. How did you get to the name Regent Street? That's actually also a good question. I was dating my now husband at the time. He works in investment sales with C.B. Richard Ellis, and they had been engaged by the Crown. So essentially, the Queen of England was their client. The Crown had decided to sell an interest in their Regent Street portfolio in London. And as a result of that, I'd done a little bit more research on Regent Street. I did spend a year living in London after university as well. 
That was right before I went to school, the one year in Paris where I went to school. And I learned that Regent Street was actually the first known street in history to be thoughtfully merchandised. So where, for example, they decided to put a butcher beside a baker, beside a cheese shop, rather than have, you know, a cheese shop beside a fashion store. And I thought for what I do, there was good synergy in terms of, you know, thoughtfully merchandising and thinking about landlords and tenancies and co-tenancies. Let's assume, okay, date stamp, it's April 20th, 2020. For those that are regular listeners, we like to kind of put time frames around the conversations because things are changing so rapidly. But before we go there, let's assume it's April 20th, 2019, so a year ago. What is it that you do for your clients? Yeah, it was a lot busier a year ago, that's for sure. So basically, Regent Street has developed a reputation primarily for working with food service clients. So about 80% of our business is tenant mandate business. And I would say about 80% of that 80% is in the food service category of retail. So we really help restaurants find their real estate locations and negotiate sustainable deals. On the landlord side, We are, because we've been quite active in that space in the city, a number of landlords in Toronto have approached us to list space that they've got where they're specifically looking for cool, reputable, professional, sustainable food service tenants. So we've taken on a little bit more selectively some listings in that space. And then we also do work with tenants outside of the food space as well. Just to keep it interesting, we work with uh, children and baby store, quite a large one called West Coast Kids. And when I say large, I mean large in footprint. We did their Hillcrest deal in 17,000 square feet a couple of years ago. We work with Consonant Skincare. We work with a hair salon. We've worked with Wax On. So we keep it interesting and don't only focus on food, but certainly what we're known for, I would say, in the city and in Canada is restaurant leasing. And you've got a a family connection to the restaurant world too, if I am mistaken. I do. Yes. So I did grow up in the restaurant business. My dad started a restaurant company just over 40 years ago. And interestingly, when I got my real estate license with this gentleman who'd been helping me with my real estate search for a creperie, I got the license and I did not feel at all prepared to engage in commercial real estate. It was The course was so residentially driven So I didn't really feel like I I knew much of the business. But what I did know is that I understood the restaurant business. I'd grown up in it. I was very, very close to signing a deal to open my own restaurant. So at least in focusing on those kind of tenant clients, I could already speak their language. And I hope that with some time and experience, learning the leasing side of that business would come along with it. Let's assume COVID doesn't exist for now. We're going to get there as we, I guess we have to, but what are the trends in the food world and the restaurant world? What was kind of changing leading up to, you know, obviously what we're in today. And, and I'm assuming there's kind of a big pause since nothing's open. And what, what are the trends that are going to kind of persist or continue on the exit of this? Well, restaurant leasing, I mean, to our good fortune at Regent Street, restaurant leasing and growth in the food and beverage industry was very strong right up until you know, a month and a half ago, very strong, especially relative to the overall industry of retail. So retail in general, as you know, a lot of people know, was coming under threat due to omni-channel retailing and the threat of more and more customers and purchasers buying online instead of coming into stores and shopping in bricks and mortar. Well, it wasn't, sorry to cut you off, wasn't experiential retail just meant put a bunch of restaurants, didn't it? 
Well, look, I think that there's no question that any of the large landlords had made a decision a handful of years ago to increase their F&B footprints at their shopping malls. What does that stand um, for? Food and beverage. Okay. Oh, food Just and beverage. Sure. Sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry. It's food okay. and beverage. It's okay. You know, for example, I, I think, I don't know, five to 10 years ago, and don't quote me on these exact numbers, but I would say five to 10 years ago, Oxford would have said that as a proportion of their overall retail mix, food and beverage made up about 10%. Whereas, and that I think was sort of Canada wide as well. Whereas in the US, that footprint was closer to 20%. And I think as landlords could see more and more that traditional retail was starting to struggle and food and beverage was becoming more and more in demand. You know, a lot of the landlords had sort of changed their outlooks to increase that footprint to upwards of 20 plus percent. So no question, you know, experiential retail did include a lot of you know, food and beverage components. I think a lot of traditional retail stores would bring in a food and beverage component as well. So you see with Saks Fifth Avenue, with Nordstrom, you know, none of those department stores don't have really good food and beverage components to them anymore. As some smaller traditional fashion retailers might bring in a coffee component. But I also think that there are a number of retailers, you know, I've had for the last couple of years, unbelievable experiences at Aritzia, for example, they do private shopping, you know, things that make me want to go into the store instead of just browsing their website and picking things haphazardly. You know, for someone who doesn't have a lot of time with a company to be running with two young children, anything that can save me time. And if that kind of experience of someone picking out the clothes that might suit you best to cut down on that time or cut down on having to make returns, I found very helpful. So I think, you know, tenants were trying, but there's no question that the increase in online shopping was having an impact on bricks and mortar retailing. So on the restaurant side, luckily for Regent Street, because that is our core business, restaurants, for the most part, were all in expansion mode leading up to COVID. I have a, I don't know if this is a right question to ask, and I apologize, but are you, maybe you can't answer this question as I frame it, are you pro or con, or are you for or against sort of the cactus clubbanization of a lot of sort of restaurant experience. And they, they seem to be exploding and, and dominating. And it's particularly, I mean, I'm, our office is at 100 University Avenue, so I'm downtown. And it feels more and more like my options are Cactus Club, Earl's, or Moxie's. And I have to go further out to find a more authentic, a more unique, a more kind of mom and pop, if that's the right language. How does Regent Street approach that? And what kind of, what is your philosophy or what's your opinion? Well, look, we work with Cactus Club. We handle all of their real estate in Ontario. And so they are a client. And I will say, and I think without bias, I do not put Cactus Club in the same category as Earl's or Moxie's. To me, Cactus Club is superior. Our mandate or sort of our vision and mandate at Regent Street is to try to work with best in class operators in each category. So in that overall category, which, you know, I hear what you're saying, you may lump in Earl's, Joey's. I mean, certainly Cactus Club would not be okay with me working with either of those two groups altogether. We definitely feel, and I think if you canvas landlords, they would also say that Cactus is best in that category in class. And I think it's great because I think that what they are doing is better than anyone else. And all it does is push other groups to work harder, to do better, and to be better, which is to benefit of all of us. You know, I do still think that, yes, all of those guys, there's a Moxie's downtown, there's an Earl's downtown, there's obviously a Cactus downtown. There will, I'm not sure how much this is going to put things on hold, but right before 
right before COVID hit, Joey's had secured a deal right in downtown Toronto. But there are also some fabulous one-off restaurants in the downtown core. And I don't think that they're going anywhere. And they offer something a little bit different. You know, Cactus and Earl's, Joey's, Maxie's, whatever. They may be restaurants that you go to two or three times a week. You know, most people aren't necessarily going to be going to a canoe two or three times a week. And I think that there is a place for all of those groups. And to Aaron's point, when you're talking about the uniqueness of some of the mom and pops, that might be a personal dining preference. You as a broker, though, it's got to be a lot easier negotiating with the landlords when you've got a, a serious heavy hitter restaurant behind you than trying to do a lease for a one-off mom and pop. You know what? I would say it actually, it isn't necessarily always the case. I can definitely see how you would think that. I think there's no question there's a lot of demand from landlords to be doing deals with Cactus Club. They are certainly not easy deals to do. They spend more on their build out than, well, they certainly just, they don't cut any corners when it comes to their build out. So the economics, despite the volumes that they can do, are not always easy to negotiate. They're also extremely discerning when it comes to their design. If they can't get a design that's going to fit in a space, they'll walk away rather than try to fit a square peg into a round hole. But with some of the smaller groups, you know, we've also worked with Aloe and Alouette, Pizzeria Libretto. We've worked with first markets like Wilbur, Mexicana. IQ is a client of ours. So we've actually really enjoyed working with first market groups. And I think, you know, we know what they need to do to package themselves. We also know the business well enough to be able to sort of weed out Does this operator have what it takes to do something great? And landlords are realizing more and more. I mean, I don't think landlords want to have a, you know, Joey's or Earl's or that category of tenant in every single office lobby downtown, because you're right, Aaron, then how does that make room for sort of other different, smaller, more boutique operations? And those smaller guys that are, let's say, only going to do one location, Ever, or maybe going to do five locations, whereas, you know, groups like Oliver and Bonaccini have got 70 operations across the country. You know, there's 35 taxes clubs. Those are the things that are also going to differentiate their assets that are going to make people come because you can't go to another building that's got exactly what this group is offering. So no restaurant deal is easy to negotiate. And I would just say that there's advantages to both sides, certainly a larger group. The covenant is going to be stronger, which is always appealing to a landlord. But with a smaller, less experienced group or a startup, they are typically offering something that doesn't exist in the market. And that can be appealing for other reasons to landlords. So Vanessa, obviously you deal with a lot of groups and specialize in food. So other than you know the big names that you clearly deal with, what do you say to new groups to the marketplace? You mentioned that you deal with some first-to-market groups. You know, what do you tell them about getting into this business? I mean, we love to work with all different kinds of groups, including first to market. I'm really drawn to passionate entrepreneurs. I wanted to start my own first to market restaurant. So I've got tremendous respect for those that want to do it. And we are really proud to have played a part on the real estate side with some really great brands so far. You know, we did the first ever Amaya Indian restaurant group location that's now got, you know, over 20 locations. The very first IQ with Claudio Prelay, one of Canada's master chefs, we did his very first Colborne Lane location and then went on to help him with Origin. And it takes a lot to get into this business. You know, there are groups that get referred to me that wake up one day and want to get into the restaurant business. And I can just tell that they have not thought everything through and don't appreciate what an unforgiving and difficult business that it is. 
it, you know, I sincerely feel that it takes, you know, an element of crazy to want to get into this business. There are certainly far easier ways to make money in life than the restaurant business. And it takes a massive dose of passion. I mean, I think the most successful restaurateurs really live and breathe that they were put on this earth to cook and create and to wine and dine people. They're passionate about hospitality, passionate about food, passionate about design. You know, it, there's so much that goes into the details. And I get so inspired by the amazing clients that we work with that feel all those things. But, you know, there's no question we meet some people and I feel like the right thing to do is to tell them, I would think this through a lot longer before you think signing a lease is a good idea. Yeah, I can say from personal experience, I got a few friends whose spirits have been broken in the, in the restaurant business, and it's it's tough to see. But also, you've seen some successes as well, and that's you know equally as beautiful to see somebody passionate about something and be able to do it for fifteen hours a day, seven days a week to make a success out of it. Well, that's right, exactly. This might be a good spot to jump into you know the current day situation with restaurants. Obviously, everything we spent the last little bit talking about has come grinding to a halt straight across the country. I think it's pretty universal. So the clients that you're you're talking to now, what's the recurring themes that you're having, uh, conversations you're having with them about their COVID plans and how they can you know, get themselves through to the other side? Well, there's no question the common theme amongst all our clients from, you know, the big ones like Oliver and Bonaccini and Cactus Club to some of the smaller ones like Zeteca IQ, Tractor Foods, this has been the most devastating event in the history of their businesses. And, you know, some of these businesses are 40 years old. Most of our clients are very uncertain about how they will navigate and get through to the end of this and still have a business to operate. I mean, they've effectively been shut down. The government has mandated shutdowns. They can't operate. There is some opportunity for delivery. But again, if your offering is one that is not conducive to delivery, like for example, an auberge du pommier or a canoe, you know, there isn't really a market for that. And also just based on where they're located, you know, canoe on the 54th floor of the Toronto Dominion Bank building, pickup and delivery is really not an option. For those groups where pickup and delivery has been a part of their service or could become now part of their service. Most of our clients are trying to do that. But I think what people need to understand is that when they've signed these leases, it wasn't designed around a pickup and delivery business. If it was, they wouldn't be located in expensive shopping centers like Yorkdale or right in the downtown core. You know, a footprint, for example, with Cactus Club of, you know, 15,000 square feet, 400 plus seats, you know, you're paying rent on every one of those seats. You're paying hydro costs on that entire volume of space. There's no amount of takeout or delivery that's going to be able to offset shutting down all of that dine-in business. Also, most people don't know, you know, with delivery services like Uber Eats, DoorDash, from an economic standpoint, the only group that that's actually really favorable for are the delivery services and the consumer. I love those services, but I definitely know that restaurants are not making money and maybe the few that are, we're talking about pennies on the dollar because the charge that an Uber Eats takes is often upwards of 30%. And there are not, like no restaurant is working with the 30% margin. So again, and that's why you're seeing through COVID, a lot of operators are offering discounts to pick up because then at least there's a little more margin in it for them. So it's been a terrible time. And I, you know, I think that there's a good chance if the government doesn't come up with an appropriate relief package for the hospitality industry, that we could be looking at upwards of 50 
or more percent of operators that will not open their door once this is over. And of course, you know, that will uh, come with its own set of interesting market conditions in terms of so much increased vacancy. How interested are people going to be in getting into the restaurant business? But on the bright side, I'm also very hopeful that for those that can weather this terrible storm and can find a way to do that, that it will open up a lot of new opportunities for them. And I think, you know, it's going to change what it's going to change market rents. I think we're going to see a lot of new clauses in leases that protect tenants from future pandemics or at least mitigate their risks of this kind of thing happening again. Is there anybody doing okay in a delivery model? Groups, you know, like uh, Pizza Pizza, you know, for a Pizza Pizza location, they're not very big. They do most layout bound delivery. Would they still be profitable in this? Or are the margins that tight that even losing the partial in-store sales would put them in a tough spot? I think that's an example of a group that may, you know, I don't know enough about their model, but what I do know is, you know, for taking delivery, for the most part, people are going to be drawn to things that aren't extremely expensive. So pizza, pizza, very reasonably priced. It's a product that travels quite well. So, you know, if people are going to pay for something that's got to, you know, travel in a car from, you know, 20 to 30 minutes from oven to front door, you want it to be something that's going to travel well, which pizza obviously does. So they would certainly be faring better than most. I don't know enough about their specific model to know if they could be profitable. Are they breaking even? I can't say with certainty, but that would be an example, I would say, of a group that if anyone is, that they might be. Yeah. And then you mentioned, obviously, that you're primarily tenant focused. The landlords that you do speak with, what are their longer term plans to weather the storm? Yeah, I think that, you know, we've got very good relationships with landlords. I think more and more with deal making, it's not, you know, sitting on two different sides of the table. I mean, this is really coming together and creating partnerships when you're making deals. And this is a terrible time for landlords. I mean, literally, I've spent my last month helping a lot of our tenants draft rent relief requests for the month of April. And I'm sure same will be happening in May. And landlords, I mean, I was speaking to a landlord client and colleague the other day. I mean, they've got $500 million worth of debt that they need to be servicing through this. And they depend on their rental income to do that. And they're very largely a a retail landlord. And from my understanding, just keeping sort of trying to keep my finger to the pulse in terms of what's going on, I mean, from what I understand on the industrial and office side, virtually across the board, 80 plus percent of rents have been collected. On the retail side, my understanding is basically no landlords collected more than 40% of their April rent. So a massive shortfall from what they'd be used to collecting. And I think everyone's expecting that May will be worse. So, you know, I think landlords understand that they need to do their best to work with tenants. Most landlords that I've been in contact with have agreed at the very least that not paying rent in April will not be considered a default. They're proposing that it be a deferral until later on in 2020, which is better than nothing. But again, you know, for the tenants, unless in some way we get through this soon. And at some point in the balance of the year, the tenant sort of can double their sales in one month to afford a double rent payment. You're really just piling debt onto debt for the tenants. But the landlords are in a very difficult position too, because they've got their own obligations. They've got you know pension funds that they've got to be accountable to. And so I really feel, and I think both sides, both tenant and landlord sides are aligned on this, that we really do need some government intervention in the form of sensible relief. So 
for example, a number of the relief programs that the government have proposed are perhaps helpful to some categories of retail and business, but they're not helpful at all to others. And so, for example, if you're a restaurant and a retailer that has been forced to close and can generate zero income through this pandemic, the 75% wage subsidy is not a helpful alternative. Most of those groups, if well, most of them, and I would say all of them who stand a chance of making it through this, would have laid off all of their staff at this point. And so if they can't be generating any sales and revenue, to hire them back to only then have to pay them 25% of their income is just adding liability to the operator, to the retailer, to the restaurateur. And so that's not helpful. It's piling more debt onto debt. And you're hiring people that can't be doing anything. It can't be productive because you don't have a, a business that's operating. So that's an example of a, a relief option that, you know, though it may be helpful to certain groups, I would say in the restaurant and retail category, it's not particularly helpful to any of them. So I guess this is timely then because this is a, a Monday. Just last week, Justin Trudeau announced a we would see some relief for commercial tenants. We don't have news on that yet. So what would you want to see him? You know, he comes to the podium for his daily announcement. What, what would you want to hear him say that would specifically address the restaurant needs? Well, look, all I can say is I'm really glad I'm not in politics right now because I don't think that there are any easy answers. You know, I think about the long-term impact on every Canadian as a result of all of these relief packages that are going to have to be paid back in, in some form or another. I'm very curious to see what they come up with. I think that the industry, both on the landlord and tenant side, were very relieved to at least hear some acknowledgement of the need for relief last week. And I think people are really dying to hear the details of all of that. I struggle to sort of contemplate what they can come up with that will be helpful to tenants and landlords and not be crazy for the country. But, you know, the hospitality industry is the, as far as I know, is the fourth largest employer in the country. So there are a lot of reasons why it's in the country's best interest to not let the industry completely collapse. Because it's not just the lost revenue from the shut months. It's, as you mentioned, the restaurants not coming back ever. Those are jobs that are permanently lost, not just lost for a three-month shutdown. It's, well, I remember reading recently that uh, 10% of the restaurants are already shut, even at this date. They'll be shut forever, and uh, that yeah. number keeps going up. I mean, well, you're already seeing restaurant down. groups just handing over their keys and just saying, even once we're allowed to open, you know, no thanks. I just, I got to get out of this. Business. Think of the, the supply chain implications all the way down to the farmers, right? Like if there's no restaurants, there isn't demand for their produce, for their meat, for their, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Like it has significant economic implications all the way through our society. I anticipate, and I'm, this is totally me just speculating, I anticipate there's a pretty robust rent subsidy, rent relief program coming down pretty quickly for all retail tenants to keep the landlords whole, which in turn keeps the lenders, thank you, whole, and keeps the banking industry supported ultimately. But let's see, who knows? That's just my instinct. I think that that is what, what it's going to take. I worry though, and I know that you know some of our clients have tried to get as active as possible lobbying the government. I just don't know that there's a great understanding of how expensive, especially in urban centers, rents are. You know, when you look at the rents at a mall like Yorkdale or Pacific Center in Vancouver or, you know, or on Bloor Street or in the downtown financial core, I mean, these are massive monthly rent obligations. 
And, you know, my concern from what I've seen so far from the relief packages from the government, and, and I, as I said, I'm glad I'm not a politician right now. Uh, this is uncharted territory for them as well. But unfortunately, you know, this one size fits all type approach just doesn't work. You know, if you look at the rents, as I said, downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver versus the rents in Timmins, Ontario, you know, we're talking about completely different ballgames. And my concern is that if they come forward with sort of a blanket solution that's not really going to address sort of the specific needs of the different markets, different categories of retail and that sort well, of thing. We're, I mean, we're running long. So this is the last question before we lead to something positive. And I'm still trying to figure out what the positive is. We'll get there. Before we go, I mean, do you think that the social psyche has changed to the point where we won't be able to fit as many tables and chairs into a restaurant as historical, meaning trickle down, the margins won't be there. Therefore, leases and rents can't be as high and the landlords are going to have to say to themselves, okay, well, I just can't charge what I used to be able to charge for for restaurant space. I think you bring up an excellent point, Aaron. You know, there's more and more talk of a phased back in approach to things reopening. I've heard the idea of restaurants needing to cut their capacity in half, you know, to keep tables twice as far apart to keep more space in bar areas. And that is very frightening to restaurateurs because unless rent is cut in half, taxes are cut in half, labor costs are cut in half, hydro expenses are cut in half, you end up with a model that does not work. I mean, when I, if, you know, the general public could see what a restaurant pro forma looks like, it is more detailed than you could ever imagine. And that is, you know, that's when you know a restaurant group knows what they're doing because they've got every line item of expense and it's relative to what their liability obligations are. And I think that that is partially driving people that are saying, I'm handing in the keys because I don't see a future where my current obligations will work and make me a living anymore. So, you know, it is going to be interesting to see how the market comes back from this. Are people going to want to, you know, one, like what is going to be government mandated if it's half the capacity limits in terms of humans in an establishment? And two, what are people's feelings going to be like? You know, are we going to go from one week to the next saying, stay home, don't go anywhere, wear masks to, okay, great, go on out and have a party at a restaurant and get back to life as normal. I think that there's a really rocky road ahead for retail and restaurants. Okay, what's happy? Where's the happy note, Adam? Let's end on well, a happy well, note. I, I, I do have one, actually. <laughs> okay, I'm good. Happy, okay, go. I'm happy Vanessa does not own a crepe stand right now because that would uh, be in really <laughs> bad shape right now or a crepe restaurant. Oh, I'm happy yeah. about that, too. I'm happy about that, too. <laughs> I do think that there is happy news, and I, I'm counting on it. I love my business. I love the industry that I work in. I feel so grateful for the people that I get to work with and I'm counting on it coming back. I think that the positive lining is going to be, this is going to be an exercise of the survival of the fittest. The best operators I am holding on to believing will make it through this. We are going to end up with more vacancies than ever. But I think on the bright side, those will only get filled with the best retail and restaurant groups out there. And that will be positive, I think, for the whole country. It's just going to, I think, take some time to get there and, and going to be painful in the meantime. But I do think that that's something that we can look forward to. Well, you've already got restaurateurs that are built to survive in, in their mentality. They got into a tough business. They're not unaccustomed to tough times. That's so exactly it's, it's right. Point. Very resilient, hardworking, determined. Yeah. I'm just assuming that they're all working at home, creating these new extravagant 
dishes. And so we're going to get back to just new flavors and a whole new line of servings. They got nothing better to do, right? Than create new dishes. I mean, last summer was the Aperol Spritz. This summer might be, you know, some interesting COVID cocktail. The quarantini, the quarantini, I think is they're calling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Vanessa, this has been a really good conversation. You know, we don't often get to cover. We've never covered this topic. I think it was really interesting. It's such a great, important component to the real estate community at large. It'd be really fascinating to see how you know the restaurateurs and and the, that retail component works itself out in the long run. Thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciated having you. Uh, of course, thank you to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you for Yardy for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you for Adam for co-hosting. And again, thanks, Vanessa, for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.